Today on Inside Politics, expelled. The House just voted to kick George Santos out of Congress. His response to the historic move? To hell with this place. We'll go live to Capitol Hill in moments. Plus, airstrikes, combat, and bloodshed as the Israel-Hamas truce collapses and fighting resumes. This as an explosive new report is out about what Israel knew about the Hamas terror plot more than a year before the attack. And why did they dismiss those warnings? I'm going to ask the reporters who broke the story. And remembering a trailblazer. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female Supreme Court justice, died today at age 93. Tributes are pouring in honoring her life and legacy both on and off the bench. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start with that breaking news on Capitol Hill. George Santos just became the third lawmaker since the Civil War to be kicked out of the House of Representatives by his peers. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. Manu, wow. Yeah, historic, unprecedented, and something that has caused deep divisions within the Republican ranks. Ultimately, 105 Republicans voted for his ouster. They needed 77 Republicans to vote for George Santos' expulsion, so they cleared that hurdle. In the final vote, 311 to 114, 290 ultimately were needed for that two-thirds majority, but never before in American history have we seen someone who has been expelled from the House without being convicted of a crime. The other who were expelled were members of the Confederacy, which is why a lot of Republicans had pause, were concerned. The Speaker of the House himself announcing his opposition behind closed doors this morning. He said that he was concerned about the precedent that would be set by an accusation made against a member not convicted of a crime, kicking him out of Congress. But importantly, Johnson and his leadership team did not whip the vote, did not tell their members how to vote. Johnson told them they should vote their conscience and they should vote their districts. This effort led by New York Republican freshmen in particular who believed that Santos was unfit for office, had been pushing for months for ultimately for him to get there and they now will contend with the fact that this narrow Republican majority has gone even narrower. Before Mike Johnson could only lose four votes on any party line vote, now he can only lose three Republican votes on any party line vote making this such a significant move and also Dana, this seat will now be subject to a special election in a district that Joe Biden carried. Something that Republicans could lose, could see their Republican majority narrowed even further and wasting no time, the House Democratic Super PAC just announced plans to spend big in that district to try to turn it blue ahead of the special election. So the political ramifications so significant amid this historic and unprecedented vote that George Santos left the Capitol and left Congress, no longer a member of Congress, now has to worry about his trial date in the months ahead. Dano. Manu, thank you so much for all that reporting. I want to bring in our panel with their reporting and their insights, CNN's David Chalian, CNN's Lauren Fox, CNN's Eva McKend, and Laura Barone-Lopez with the PBS NewsHour. Uh, Lauren, you are on Capitol Hill all day, every day, and uh, I know you have encountered George Santos many, many times and, of course, have been following this vote. Um, Did it surprise you? 
Yeah, you know, I thought it was really interesting because it was kind of surprising some of the members who were in the room. I was in the chamber as the vote began, and you saw members sort of standing back, looking up at the board, counting the votes as they came in, because it was going to be a close call. You had Republican leadership saying behind closed doors and publicly that they had reservations and concerns about setting this precedent of ousting someone from Congress who hadn't been convicted of a crime. And I think that that was really part of the reason that it felt like maybe the momentum last night and this morning was going in Santos's favor. But then again, you had so many members who were concerned about setting a precedent where you have someone who is accused of so many things in this scathing ethics report and gets to remain in Congress. I think that there would have been a precedent set either way. Yeah, oh, that's a really good point. Tony Gonzalez, his uh, fellow Republican, he's out of Texas, tweeted this this morning. Today is the day we shit can Santos. It's really uh, it was actually, despite that, that's Wasn't Texas it? for expel. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that translation, David Chalian of New Jersey. Uh, the, uh, that obviously proved to be true, but it wasn't entirely clear, as Lauren was saying, going in. Yeah, I mean, I think that what was really fascinating was watching the House Republican leadership en masse uh, decide at the end to vote against this measure and to save Santos. And it just seems that there was a last minute attempt, I don't, want to ascribe motives here, but uh, to have their narrow majority not get narrower, like that, 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 that there was a thought there that that may be worth doing. Elise Stefanik, of all the leaders, perhaps the most interesting, because she's from New York yeah. and is surrounded with all those frontline, vulnerable Republicans in these tough districts mm -hmm. that delivered the majority uh, to the House Republicans in 22. And, and she also was saying, no, no, Santos can stay when they've all been calling uh, for him to go. Uh, it just seemed to me that they were together saying, hey, as the leaders here, uh, we do think this becomes a larger problem. Maybe it's the precedent argument, but it's a larger political headache for them to have the narrower majority. At the end of the day, though, guys, like, what are we talking about here? I mean, th this guy, I mean, Santos was for a year just a black mark on the institution, a black mark for the House Republican Conference, and obviously had just worn out his time for any goodwill with enough of his fellow Republicans. To, to David's point, the spectacle of Congressman Santos was really a natural outgrowth of the Trump era, defined by uh, chaos, alternative facts, really stressing our institutions. And we saw today the House take a vote, at least, and say, listen, we have got to abide by somewhat of a minimum standard. I also want to mention the constituents. So there was this group, the Concerned Citizens of the District, and they have been organizing for months for this outcome, really putting pressure on the Republicans in Long Island to do all that they could to get rid of Congressman Santos. And a lot of what we saw today was a result of that as well. Yeah. I, I just want to go back to what you were alluding to, David, and that is that uh, despite the fact that the vote to expel him obviously succeeded. The last minute uh, sort of push by the leadership, including the House Speaker, which we should know for people who don't uh, know this, it is unusual for the Speaker of the House to actually cast a vote. The fact that he did and announced ahead of time that he would, and then the other leaders uh, in the Republican conference followed suit uh, was very interesting. Let's listen to what Dave Joyce, a uh, member of the Republican conference, said going into this vote. He told us to vote our conscience, and that's what his conscience uh, told him to do, I guess. But uh, for me, it was a pretty simple case, having been there since the beginning. And uh, one thing about, you know, 25 years as a prosecutor before I got to this place, 
the, the good part about a numbers case or checks case is I don't need anybody to explain them to me. The numbers speak for you by themselves. And the numbers, of course, the backstory, which I think all of our viewers probably know by that by now, is he's not only uh, in big trouble in, in the courts uh, with the prosecutions, but he, there was this damning ethics report that came out a few weeks ago. Right, and that ethics report outlined that he used campaign funds for trips for lavish lavish trips for botox treatments for you name it clothes i mean and he uh david joyce also said you know this came down to theft that members who voted to oust him said that it was very clear based on the ethics report based on what we've heard about the federal trial that santos was stealing money from his campaign coffers and congressman max miller sent out that email uh, earlier today saying that he was uh that he was stolen from yeah. by Santos's campaign and that that appeared to also push Republican votes back uh, against Santos. But I, I mean, I think that the point that you made, David, uh, maybe it was at the core of this, which was that ultimately they didn't want their majority to get smaller. Speaker Johnson is having a hard time already with uh, Republicans mm -hmm. and just keeping support in line for him and what he wants to see passed. And with another Republican out of the House, that's going to make his job a lot sure. harder. Sure. In the short term, of course, the question is whether making the majority smaller now by kicking him out will uh, give them much, a little bit more of a chance to hold on to it in the 2024 elections. I just want to go through a little bit of what uh, we were just referring to, Laura. Campaign, this is the ethics report, campaign funds used on Botox, lavish hotels, Sephora, OnlyFans, Hermes, uh, knowingly filed false or incomplete campaign finance reports, substantial evidence of fraudulent campaign loans. So that's what he's been accused of in a bipartisan, equally divided ethics committee. This is what he said on the way out. He said it after the vote, it's over. The House spoke. That's their vote. They just set new dangerous precedent for themselves. Why would I want to stay here? To hell with this place. Can I just also say, though, over the last 48 hours, reporters have repeatedly pressed Santos to explain those purchases, to explain line by line in the ethics report. If he says it's not fair, explain what's not fair about it. And time and time again, he has said, I'm not going to go line by line. I don't want to go over that. There'll be a time and a place in the future. Well, if you're a member of Congress and you're on the fence about whether or not you think Santos should stay, whether or not you think he did it, then if the guy accused of doing something doesn't even want to explain mm -hmm. that there is some kind of reason behind this ethics report that he wasn't guilty, then that would be the opportunity to do it. And he didn't take multiple opportunities. And I do think it's worth reminding viewers that he was given those chances to explain himself and uh, declined. Th that's very important uh, to put out there. He is uh, saying not just to hell with this place, but he's going to try to take some of his now former Republican colleagues down. This is uh, according to Politico. He said, I will have fun on my way out. Don't worry about it. And he said that he is going to name names. I have plenty of receipts. Yeah, so he's going to try the Madison Cawthorn route, it seems. Mm. Uh, listen, I don't know how far that will get him. It won't get him his seat back, that's for sure. Something that sort of interests me is now that he has to pivot to really focusing on all of his uh, criminal uh, troubles is that he no longer has... Um, this title sort of as a, as a shield, as a bargaining chip with prosecutors. I've covered uh, malfeasant 
um, elected officials in the past and something that they've been able to negotiate for lesser time is typically, okay, I will resign from my public office and I won't run again. Now Congressman Santos doesn't have that. That's such a good point. Uh, let's look ahead to what we were uh, alluding to, which is the fact that there is now an empty seat and it's in the New York delegation. The New York governor, Kathy Hochul, just put uh, the following on social media. I am prepared to undertake the solemn responsibility of filling the vacancy in New York's third district. The people of Long Island deserve nothing less. We should be clear. I don't think she means she's going to fill the vacancy <laughs> herself, she's gonna, uh, but that she's going to call for a special a election special as is required election. by law for her to do so. In fact, yeah. you heard when Speaker Johnson uh, was presiding over the end of the vote and bringing the gavel down, he uh, ordered the clerk of the House to inform the governor of New York of the now vacant seat because she has to call this special election. There are no primaries in the special election. The party committees, for fans of backroom deals, this is a good one. Uh, uh, party committees get together and they decide who their nominees are, are going to be. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if indeed people who have already declared their intention to run for the seat in November are selected and actually run in the special and get a jump start uh, on their election. Because that's going to be coming up, you know, within the next 80 days or so, we're going to have a special election. And remember, this was one of those seats that Republicans um, took out of Democratic terrain, I should say. And let's just look at what that terrain is. In 2020, Joe Biden won the area that is now the third district, 53% uh, to Donald Trump's 45%. That is where the special election is going to be held in a re what it, for what is now a Republican seat. That's right. And it was previously held by a Democrat, uh, Tom Sozzi uh, of New York. And I actually just got information from a source that says he's going to be meeting tonight with some Nassau and Queens Democrats, you know, talking to chairs and potentially uh, potentially readying for a run in the special election. So uh, Democrats would probably like it if he's someone who runs in the special election because of the fact that he has experience in that district. He's a more moderate Democrat. They really do think that they lost that seat because of the fact that he decided not to run. Right. Last election cycle, he went for the governorship and, mm -hmm. and lost. So uh, this is one of those multiple seats in New York where Democrats are hoping that they can flip it back. Okay, everybody stand by because next we're going to look at what's happening in Israel, the truce between Israel and Hamas is over. And once again, explosions are rocking Gaza. We're live on the ground next. Plus, we'll look at a damning report about what Israeli intelligence knew about Hamas's plans before its barbaric murder of more than 1,000 Israelis on October 7th. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited-edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. 
celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Now to the Middle East, where explosions are rocking the region. This video from moments ago shows flares over the Gaza skyline after the week-long pause expired. Also just into CNN video of Israel's Iron Dome intercepting incoming Hamas rockets near Tel Aviv today. There's growing fear about what all this means for the 137 hostages Israel says are still being held captive by Hamas terrorists. CNN's Oren Lieberman is covering all of the developments from Tel Aviv. Oren, let's start with what is happening on the ground with the resumed military campaign. Dana, Israel promised that it would resume in force its campaign in Gaza, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Punishing strikes, especially focused on Khan Yunus in southern Gaza and Rafah, which is the area of the border crossing. According to Israel, they've hit more than 200 what they call terror targets across those areas. The challenge, of course, is that southern Gaza is exactly where Israel told Palestinians from northern Gaza to evacuate to earlier in this war. According to health authorities in Gaza, more than 100 Palestinians have been killed as a result of Israeli strikes, and that has put even more pressure on a health system that is already nearing the brink of collapse with hospitals overflowing. The UN called the resumption of fighting catastrophic for Gaza. Meanwhile, we saw uh, um, launches towards central Tel Aviv, interceptions we saw off our balcony where I'm standing right now, at least 10 Iron Dome interceptors launched at the rockets that were fired here. That's the first time we've seen rockets launched this far in more than two weeks. So both sides, as they promised, certainly resuming fighting here. And there's no signs that this will let up here as Israel continues in its goal of trying to destroy Hamas. No sign that they're going to let up, but are there any kinds of negotiations going on to try to uh, to get these hostages out, which you would think would uh, create another pause in that fighting you're talking about? So there are ongoing negotiations between Israel and Hamas indirectly. Those are being led by Qatar, as they have been, as well as Egypt and the United States. The goal here is to get back to the truce agreement, which had very specific guidelines or requirements for every 10 women and children Hamas released from Gaza. There would be another pause of 24 hours in fighting. The question is, does Hamas and do other organizations in Gaza have 10 women and children to meet that requirement? Israel claims they do for at least one or two more days of pause. pause. Hamas says they don't and that they wanted to talk to Israel about re the release of elderly men as well as men and women of fighting age, so younger men and women. But they say Israel rejected all attempts at trying, to, at trying to have those discussions. A senior State Department official said the negotiations are ongoing and expressed, I would say, some level of optimism that they could get back to a truce, perhaps even in the next day or two. But in terms of what we're seeing from the military, there, there is no truce. The military and Hamas very much at war. Yeah, and Israel, as you've heard many more times than I, argue that the only reason those hostages were able to come out is because of the military campaign. So we'll see what happens. Oren, thank you so much for your excellent reporting there. And now we're going to go to a new bombshell report in The New York Times that Israeli officials knew Hamas attacks, Hamas had an attack plan for October 7th, more than a year 
before it happened. Here's part of what that story said. The approximately 40-page document, which Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to deaths of about 1,200 people. Joining me now is one of the reporters of this blockbuster story, Ronan Bergman. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Ronan, first I just want to start by reading a little bit more about the report that you did uh, with your colleague Adam Goldman. Uh, it says in part, Hamas followed the blueprint with shocking precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outset of the attack, drones to knock out the security cameras and automated machine guns along the border, and gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders, on motorcycles and on foot, all of which happened on October 7th. That is so chilling. This was a report, as you said, 40-page report. How far up the chain did it get, as far as you know, and why wasn't it, um, why didn't anybody heed to this or, or think that it was actually possible in the highest levels of the Israeli government? Hi. Um, the, this document, codenamed uh, Jericho Wall, was not neglected. Uh, on the contrary, massive resources and efforts were put into the operation to get it. And then it was sent to the seniors of Israeli intelligence, defense establishment, and to many analysts that work in um, data coming from Hamas, from the overall efforts of Israeli intelligence to get as much as possible from Hamas and from the Gaza Strip. This um, war plan, this attack plan, is very sophisticated. Uh, I don't remember any document that I've read that has so much secrets on Israeli um, preparation for war, the fortification of the wall, the cameras, the automatic machine guns that was not written by Israeli uh, defense establishment, um, it, it, it at least suggests that some parts of that plan are coming not from open sources. Mm -hmm. But besides that, Israeli intelligence saw this document, except for one analyst that thought differently, but Israeli intelligence, all the analysts that saw this document said, this is a roadmap. Yeah. This is an aspiration. This is something they want to be, but they are not now. They don't have the capacity or the sophistication to execute such a massive invasion into Israel. Ronan, let me just jump in there. And uh, your, your colleague and your co-author of this story, uh, Adam Goldman, is now on with us. And let me just add to what we just heard, uh, Adam, from, uh, from Ronan. This is also in your piece. Underpinning all these failures was a single fatally inaccurate belief that Hamas lacked the capability to attack and would not dare do so. That belief was so ingrained in the Israeli government officials said that they disregarded growing evidence to the contrary. Adam. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the, the themes was that Israeli intelligence saw this document. In fact, I think it was a uh, a, a, a military official who who said this document was a compass and this is where they wanted to head but they had not had a not had not arrived there yet and you you know that the israeli government and the israeli military 
um, while Ronan's right, they're deeply concerned about the document. They they hadn't disregarded it. They put an enormous amount of time and effort into trying to understand it and trying to understand Hamas's capabilities. You know, they came to this conclusion, and it's partly a failure of imagination that Hamas wasn't capable of carrying out um, such a sophisticated attack. I you know I have to t- tell you, you know, I've reported on 9/11 and Al Qaeda mm-hmm. and Bin Laden, and there are there are extraordinary parallels to what happened. On uh, in the weeks leading up to 9/11, and how our government reacted to to having that information, you know, like the Israelis, we had collected an enormous yeah. amount of intelligence about what Al Qaeda intended to do. But at the end of the day, well, we Adam, failed to imagine. Adam, yeah. I just I, you brought that up, and I just actually want to pull up uh, what the 9/11 Commission said. Uh, It's exactly to the point that you're making. The most important failure was one of imagination. We do not believe leaders understood the gravity of the threat. Top officials all told us that they understood the danger. We believe there was uncertainty among them as to whether this was just a new and especially venomous version of the ordinary terrorist threat in the United States had lived with for decades, or it was indeed radically new, posing a threat beyond any yet experienced. So it's exactly as you just said. Uh, But Ronan, the question is, not to say that people in America don't take security threats seriously, they absolutely of course do, but the existential threat that Israel faces is just different given the geography and everything else that we've known since uh, 1948 about Israel. So, the question is still why was there this disconnect between the people working so hard on this report and uh, the prepared level of preparedness or lack thereof inside the Netanyahu government. And I just want to remind our, our viewers of something that the prime minister put out there, uh, but then deleted. This was on October 28th. So this was uh, a few weeks after the October 7th attack. At no point was a warning, a warning given to Prime Minister Netanyahu on Hamas's intention to start a war. On the contrary, all the defense officials, including the heads of Intelligence Directorate and Shin Bet, assessed that Hamas was deterred. This was the assessment submitted time after time to the Prime Minister and the Cabinet by all the entities in the defense and intelligence community right up until the war broke out. So this is, again, just a few weeks after the October 7th attack by Prime Minister Netanyahu's office, Ronan. Which he deleted uh, afterwards, but gave us, gave the New York Times the same comment in English. This was tweeted in Hebrew the same day. Um, Our colleague, uh, Mark Mazzetti, from the DC Bureau of the New York Times and myself, we published another story where we um, lined all the different warnings that Prime Minister Netanyahu received that the enemies of Israel, the members of the so-called axis of resistance, are seeing Israel in its worst time, the political crisis, Mm -hmm. following the so-called judicial reform that Netanyahu initiated. They said to him, they will, they might take the opportunity, they see this as a window in which they can attack Israel. They warned him again and again and again to stop with uh, this process. And he disregarded, sometimes even refused to see them and um, we know what, what happened next. Yeah. Uh, let me just say that in hindsight, we all know what happened. In real time, it was not just about the inability to believe that Hamas is closing the gap between 
the, the Jericho Wall plan as they where they wanted to be in their competence and where they were. And only one analyst, only one woman analyst, veteran analyst that spends years yep. studying Hamas at a certain point said, this is not an imaginative scenario. This is not the dream that they have. No, not this at all. something that they are doing. Yeah, Ronan, I, I, I'm sorry, Ronan and Adam, we're going to have to leave it there. This story is just, it makes your stomach churn. Um, very, very important reporting. Thank you both for being on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, remembering the life and legacy of the first woman in U.S. history to serve on the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. Today, America lost a trailblazer. Former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor died at the age of 93. The court says that she likely passed from complications related to advanced dementia. Chief Justice Roberts remembered his former colleague by saying, quote, Sandra Day O'Connor blazed a historic trail as our nation's first female justice. She met that challenge with undaunted determination, indisputable ability, and engaging candor. Let's bring in our own Joan Biskupic to talk a lot about this. You covered her and knew her well. And um, you have said that she was so important that even though she served largely on the Rehnquist court, it was the O'Connor court. It was. And, you know, when I was writing my biography of her in 2005, I talked about how she had come to Washington knowing how to count votes because she had been a politician in Arizona, as I know you remember, Dana. And so she was a woman of great influence, much more influence than Chief Justice William Rehnquist. She was the deciding vote on abortion rights. She was the deciding vote on racial affirmative action on campuses. She was the deciding vote on the separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. And she also wrote those opinions. She was just uh, a master of bringing together uh, a real consensus on the court. And that recalls a whole different Supreme Court than we have today. I mean, it's totally different. She was appointed by Ronald Reagan. It was, I mean, who obviously just talk about the politics, right. not recognize his Republican Party now, but also wouldn't recognize the court now. Largely, uh, obviously, the majority is by Republicans, uh, Republican appointed justices, I should say, who are far different from her. So different. And, and that that's really it. She, you know, she might have, she did inch a little bit to the left over her tenure. But when you think of her as someone who I identified to the very end, in January 2006 when she retired as a conservative. She today almost looks like a lefty because just think of what's gone of her legacy. The Dobbs opinion in 2022 reversed what she wrote about the durability of Roe v. Wade. The racial affirmative action decision uh, against Harvard just this, this year reversed a 2003 milestone that she had written in a University of Michigan case. The way the court has gone also on uh, conservative religious liberty also undermines her legacy. Let's listen to what she told our former CNN colleague Judy Woodruff back in 2003 about what her appointment and confirmation meant for women. It wasn't too many years before I was born that women in this country got the right to vote in the 1920s, for heaven's sakes. In my lifetime, I have seen unbelievable changes in the opportunities for women. I think it's important, and that is uh, for the public generally, to see and 
respect the fact that in positions of power and authority that women are well represented, that it is not an all-male governance as it once was. I just love that, mm -hmm. for goodness sakes. She says that all, she used to say that all the time. <laughs> she was so practical, down to earth. She brought, as I said, you know, this kind of Western sensibility from her time in Arizona. You know, she was reared on a ranch and mm -hmm. she was just so darn practical. And Dana, the other thing she was with her colleagues was she was really the social glue. She mm -hmm. knew that if she could make relationships with them off the bench, it would smooth the relations inside the court. Yeah. Yeah. which, uh, as you said, probably came from her time as a politician beforehand. That's right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Joan. Sure. Thanks, Dan. And the House, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, just made a historic vote to expel embattled New York congressman, former congressman now, George Santos. We're going to talk to Republican Congressman Ken Buck about why he voted to oust his now former colleague. That's next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside Politics Today. George Santos became the sixth person ever to be expelled from Congress. 105 Republicans voted to kick him out of the chamber. And one of those Republicans, Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado, is here with me now. Uh, let's start with the argument against it uh, and that we heard from others, other colleagues of yours, including Matt Gates who said that this would be a bad precedent, that now is a bad precedent, because until today, the only members of Congress who were expelled were actually convicted of a crime, which George Santos is not, or uh, participated in the Civil War. Yeah, well, uh, George Santos did a lot of things that were illegal, um, and he will face that uh, jury at some point in time, but he did face the Ethics Committee. He was given uh, due process, and he didn't take advantage of it. He stalled. He uh, did his very best not to provide information and provided uh, answers that were vague and, and weren't helpful to his own defense. And so I believe he had the due process. I didn't vote last time to expel him. This time I did vote to expel him because I think that he uh, had due process, didn't take advantage of it. And at some point we can't wait on the criminal justice system. When you have a two-year term and he was indicted months ago and won't face trial in, on those criminal charges until sometime in the middle of next year, uh, Congress just can't wait that long to, to make a decision. The House Speaker Mike Johnson voted, which is unusual for a, a speaker to vote, but he voted against expulsion. What does it say about the fact that he did so and his conference didn't follow? Well, um, I, I think uh, obviously Mike is concerned about a five-vote majority becoming a four-vote majority. Um, and we have a member who's going to become president of a university and leave. And we have other members who are talking about leaving. And so, Does this speak to his lack of influence? 
I don't think it does. I, I, I think it, uh, he, he made a decision on what he thought was best for the party and the majority. Um, I don't think he made uh, a decision that others agreed with in terms of the integrity of the institution. I, I want to ask you about uh, something else that's in the, in the news, and that is the uh, book that's coming out next week by your former colleague, Liz Cheney. You worked for her father, uh, Dick Cheney, and she writes in her new book about Republicans who were signing on to the electoral vote objections. And she recounted your colleague Mark Green of Tennessee saying, quote, as he moved down the line, signing his name to the pieces of paper, Green said sheepishly to no one in particular, the things we do for the orange Jesus. What do you make of that? Well, I, uh, she's, she's bold for repeating something like that. Um, I, I'm not sure that Mark uh, really thought through uh, what he was saying, but clearly uh, Donald Trump exerted a lot of influence on a lot of people during the uh, the decision to uh, certify or decertify the electors. And uh, um, there were a lot of us that felt that by voting to certify the electors, we were putting ourselves at risk of a, a primary uh, opponent that would be supported by President Trump. And I think he made that very well known uh, to those who were making the decision. Yeah, I mean, he, as you've said many times, he's, he, the former president, now leader for uh, the Republican nomination, still exerts a lot of influence over your party. Right, and, and I think that's what Mark, um, while I think he probably regrets being quoted on the orange Jesus part, I think he uh, was, was just acknowledging the fact that Donald Trump was powerful then and remains powerful. Uh, before I let you go, you uh, are a uh, former prosecutor and you um, obviously are somebody who has reverence for, for the law and the courts. Can you give us a, a quick memory uh, of the, or sort of a, a statement on the legacy of Sandra Day O'Connor? Yeah, I, I thought, uh, one, she broke a barrier, obviously, and it was an important barrier uh, to break. And, and I'm really proud that Republicans, and, and especially a conservative Republican like Ronald Reagan, was part of that uh, breaking of that barrier, uh, having a woman on the court. Uh, two, I, I think she uh, came to the court at a time when there was a, a large feminist movement on the left, mm -hmm. and she really espoused conservative principles, small government principles that were important. And, and by elevating her to that position, I think it gave a lot of us the opportunity to say, uh, these are compassionate and, and important. No, oh, that's interesting. You can't sometimes don't think of it with uh, so much history between uh, then and now. Thank you so much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Good to see you. And up next, we're going to go live to Georgia courthouse there, where right now Donald Trump's lawyers are arguing to get the 2020 election case against him thrown out. Right now, attorneys for former President Donald Trump are defending their client in a Georgia courtroom. They're trying to get the charges against him thrown out on First Amendment grounds. CNN's Nick Valencia joins us now from outside the courthouse. Nick, what's going on inside that courtroom? Well, Dana, we've yet to hear from the former president's attorneys, but that is expected to happen any moment now. It's worth noting that Trump is not in court today, but this is the first time that we're going to hear from his criminal defense attorneys in this case. And as you mentioned, we expect them to try to get this indictment thrown out on First Amendment grounds. What his criminal defense attorney, Stephen Sadow, argues is that when Trump, after he lost in 2020, when he was peddling conspiracy theories and making claims of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election, that at its core it was political speech protected by the First Amendment. Sadow wrote in a legal filing that the remedy for false speech and lies told by the president is not a criminal indictment, 
by the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Now, we should mention that First Amendment challenges have, uh, you know, been made before and have failed in this case. Uh, past former, or I should say former co-defendants in this case, Ken Chesborough, Sidney Powell, they tried First Amendment challenges as well. You remember they took plea deals with the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Uh, they are now going to testify potentially against the former president in any future trials. But what the presiding judge in this case said is that the facts and evidence first need to be established in court before those First Amendment challenges can be made. Those uh, challenges are going to start any moment now. Dana. Okay, Nick Valencia, thank you so much for that reporting. And please tune in this Sunday to State of the Union. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina is among our guests. I hope to see you. It's 9 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Thanks so much for joining Inside Politics today. CNN News Central starts after the break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.